was praying, I hope you were praying with me, that Jesus would come back before part four of Defined. And, uh, and here we are. And now I, I want to tell you this. I've made, a, I've, made a, I've made jest of that. I just want to tell you, I'm, I, I believe Jesus is coming back soon. You know, uh, the events in the world, there's turmoil in the places where the Bible said there was going to be turmoil. The fact that the nation of Israel exists as of 1948, after almost 2,000 years not existing, is just amazing. That doesn't happen. There are things happening. I believe that all of the prophecies of the Scripture have been fulfilled before our eyes. The only prophecies left to fulfill could happen in an instant, even as Jesus returns. And, and so I believe he's coming back soon. So I've kind of I've made light of it a little bit, you know, because, I mean, hey, it's 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 real and, and, and Jesus is real. And I think Jesus has a sense of humor, so he's good with all that. But at the same time, I, I think that's a real thing. Um, but uh, Jesus hasn't come back yet. So, so we're going to talk about Genesis 38 today. And we're going to talk about the story of Tamar. And, you know, we've been looking at these ladies in the scriptures that are in Jesus' genealogy and, and looking, each of them had a unique story and, and history, an opportunity to define themselves in a certain way, but yet they chose to define themselves as followers of God. If you remember Ruth was born in a cur- to a cursed people, the Moabites, had horrible examples around her. All the people that said they were God followers were hypocrites and horrible people all around her. And Ruth showed us that it doesn't matter your family of origin. It doesn't matter if there's hypocrites uh, that you see that say they serve God, but they don't. Don't let a hypocrite stand between you and God. Like, go around the hypocrite and get to God. He wants a relationship with you. And Ruth showed us that those obstacles do not have to stand in the way in which you define yourself as a follower of God. And last week, uh, I think last week, it's time, um, we talked about Rahab. And Rahab was born into a vile culture, and she made decisions that led her into a life of prostitution. And if you have your kids in service and you had to explain to them what prostitute was last week, like, it's the Bible. I don't know what to do, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, and uh, so Rahab was a prostitute, and yet through even in the middle of her choices, in the middle of that vile culture, she said, you know what? I'm going to define myself as a follower of Yahweh. And God completely redeemed her and restored her to a woman of prominence in the community. And that's an amazing story to see that when we choose to define ourselves, even if we've made the choices, you are never too far from God for God to fully and totally redeem you. And that brings us to Tamar. And she's the first woman in the, in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But we've been going in reverse. We've been working backwards from Ruth and Rahab. And now we arrive at the first one, Tamar. And she finds herself not, her, her family wasn't great, but she, her, her deal's not her family. And her deal, as far as we know in the scriptures, is not her own choices. But Tamar's problem is that there's someone in her life, a strong man who's dominating her and putting her in a place. And and we've experienced dealing with issues that that weren't our own doing. We've experienced, uh, come on, we've experienced issues that were our own doing. And I've experienced issues that were maybe from my family and, 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 and my culture and all of those things. But sometimes there's someone in our life, maybe it's a boss or a spouse or someone that's, that's dominant in our lives, and they put something on us. And we have to see how do we define ourselves when it's not me, right? It's someone else that has power over me and in my life. How do I define myself and stand up? So we come to this story of Tamar in Genesis 38. And I just want to say this happens around 4,000 years ago, okay? 
a lot has changed in 4,000 years, right? I mean, you know, Google, Siri, just as an example, right? You know, navigation, okay? A lot has changed in 4,000 years, and our culture with women has changed in 4,000 years. Uh, back 4,000 years ago, women were viewed as basically property, and there was not a lot of respect. They, they lived in a tribal clan culture uh, in this time, and that's something we don't understand. We, we believe we're kind of all individuals and do our own thing, and if we want to do our own thing, we do it, right? But this was a completely different culture, a completely different view of women, Today, uh, there's a safety nets and there's equality and there's all of these things. This culture is completely different. And there's going to be things in this story where we're tempted to kind of step back and go, oh, no, 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 like I don't get it, right? Well, yeah, you don't get it. It's 4,000 years ago. But if we're going to hear the story of Tamar, if we're going to see her bravery, if we're going to learn from and be inspired by her courage, then we've got to be willing to dive into this culture that's completely foreign than ours and these practices that are, that are gross. I mean, honestly, there's some of these things that are just untenable. We just can't imagine them, okay? But we have to be willing to read through it, to imagine it, to get into it, if we're going to hear the message that Tamar has for us. So are you ready? <laughs> I, I, I don't always say that, but today it's like, uh, okay, are you ready? All right, so we're going to jump into Genesis chapter 38 and we're going to read a, a, a few verses, verses 11 through 18, and then we're going to jump over to Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. And it says this in Genesis 38, 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Selah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adamalite, went with him. Then Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Selah was, had grown, now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 1, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager accused him of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's pray together. 
Father, we rejoice in who you are. We rejoice in your grace as you lead us on the path. We ask, God, that you would open your word to us today. God, your spirit inspired it and spoke it into existence. And God, we just ask that by your spirit, we would understand and that we would be led. Lord, we know that your ways are the best ways. And we desire to follow after you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, each week, um, it's, it's a challenge for me to kind of gear up to, to walk up here on this platform in front of all of you. Um, throughout my life, um, I've dealt with uh, insecurities and things about the way that I look and, uh, and the way that I, and what I say. It's amazing to me every week that you guys come back. Um, I can't believe that, like, there's people that want to, like, listen to me and then come back and, and hear me again. And, and uh, you know, early in my life, that, that was a paralyzing dynamic. In fact, even when I started dating Michelle and, and I was feeling like called into ministry, uh, Pastor Sam and, and Uncle Bob, Uncle Bob's passed away, but he's a legend, and uh, they would come to me and they would talk about, um, uh, they would talk about how I can't be paralyzed by what other people think of me uh, if I'm going to do this, right? And, and I've got to get over it. And as I've, as I've grown up, honestly, it just beca- has become a, you know, you've seen the horse blinders on the horses that just keep them from looking at anything else. I, I just try to get horse blinders on and just kind of push through and, uh, and, and, and endure, right? And, and I think about what has caused those things to happen to me? Like, why did I, why do I think these things about myself? And, and I know that early on in my life, there was comparison. I look at other people and they're not, you know, awkward and gangly or whatever it is, you know, however, you know, a person would describe me. And uh, they're, they're, they're not that. And I would compare myself with that. Uh, but, you know, there were hurtful comments along the way. You know, people would say things or whatever. And, and uh, you know, kids can be mean and college buddies can be mean, even though they're like your buddies. They say things that has like a, a little bit of truth to it and it hurts and it sticks and you think about it. I mean, grown children can be mean, right? I don't know if you have grown children, but, you know, they, they can say things to their old dad that they, that they think, you know, is whatever, and, and it hurts, you know, Benjamin, it hurts, uh, you know, uh, when, you, when you say those things uh, to, to, your, to your dad, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, thinking about those insecurities have, have, have had an effect on me. I mean, sometimes I've said no to things because I was just too insecure. I mean, I think about the live stream, and it just drives me crazy, you know, because it's like, who likes to see themselves like recorded and hear their own voice? Um, I, you know, in, in certain situations, I've been too aggressive. I've been trying to show that I wasn't insecure. And so I'm like, hey, I'm here. And, ah, you know, and in other situations where I should have spoken up, I didn't speak up. I just kind of stayed quiet because I was just worried. Like, what are people going to think if I speak up uh, in this moment. And, you know, I, I know that, that my, my little insecurities and, and, and my, you know, people saying mean things about me pale in comparison to so many things that I know that you guys have endured. I mean, uh, different trauma and different things in different places that, that you've uh, experienced at the hands of maybe somebody that had power or control in your life. I mean, maybe it was a domineering parent that, that just crushed your spirit or, or a spouse uh, that, that used that sacred relationship to be something that was harmful and, and hurtful uh, or someone in your life or, or an experience that you had that was traumatic for you and, and that you look back and you say, wow, that, that has influenced the person that I've become and I don't want it to, but yet it does. And, 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 you know, we, we talk about Jesus and we talk about the healing and we talk about community and we talk about the healing that we enter into in community. And those are such real things. But the story of Genesis chapter 38 is, in fact, the story of, of a trauma that was never addressed. The story of a person who dealt with something and never dealt with it. Instead, they just ran from it. 
And Genesis chapter 38 is sandwiched between Genesis 37 and Genesis 39. You're welcome. Like, God bless you. Thanks for being here today. But Genesis 37 and Genesis 39 are the story of Joseph. And it's like this amazing story, right? The story of Joseph. And it's like all of a sudden we're in the middle of this amazing story of Joseph. And then just boom, in the middle of it, we stop and we get a different story. And, and it brings just a little bit of an edge to it and a little bit of trying to understand who is this person, Judah? Like, why do we hear, there, there's 12 brothers. Why do we have a whole story about the fourth brother? Like, I mean, how middle child can it get than the fourth of 12? Like, why do we have this story? But we see it becomes a story of, of Judah and it's inserted here so that we can learn, so that we can see that he had trauma in his life and he didn't deal with it. He never found reconciliation. He never found peace. He didn't learn how to mourn. And because of those things, the scriptures tell us in Genesis 38 what happened in his life, and it unfolds. Judah comes across as a, one of those big, surly men who if you told him, hey, bud, you, I think you need some counseling, would probably just punch you in the face. And the result is, the, is, is a family that, that is wicked before the Lord. The result is a woman who is powerless and relegated and, and viewed as cursed by others. Her name is Tamar. And if we're going to get to the, to the powerful way in which Tamar responded to this situation, if we're going to see her for who she is, then we have to push through this culture and we have to push through this essentially broken man. And we have to look at this story that in so many ways is, is broken and gross. And we have to see Tamar. And we have to see the stand that she took and the way that the risks that she took and who she was. But to get there, it's a, it's a windy road. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll try to keep it PG-13, but it's a little R. Um, and, and so we're going to have to see it uh, today. So we see the story of, of Joseph. And of course, Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob. And we've got a lot of names and we've got a lot of people. So I, I, I brought a picture for you just so that you can uh, maybe track along a little bit as we go along. We know Abraham and Isaac. And of course, Jacob is the son uh, of Isaac, brother of Esau. That's a whole other story, right? Here's this group of twins. Uh, but uh, Jacob comes and Jacob has 12 sons and by four wives, two wives and two concubines. And again, this is a whole different culture. And this was not God's plan from the beginning. Jesus told us, right, that this was not God's plan from the beginning. But he has 12 sons and he has four wives. And, and it's known that Rachel is his favorite wife. Okay, first of all, if you've got four wives, you're already in trouble. And then when you let them know that one of them is your favorite of the four, Ugh, it's even going to be worse, right? Then he's got 12 sons, which that could be a good thing. But everybody knew that the 11th son, the first son from the favorite wife, was his favorite son. And nobody else could measure up to that favorite son, Joseph. And in this story, we, we're going to be really focused in on son number one, son number four, and son number 11. But Joseph's brothers grew to hate him. They hate him because he's, he's Jacob's favorite, and Jacob shows that he's his favorite by buying him an expensive coat that he wore everywhere, right? He had this coat of many colors that he wore. It was expensive, and that coat became a symbol to his brothers that he was their favorite. And then to top it off, Jacob, excuse me, Joseph starts having dreams that all of his brothers and even his father and mother bow down to him. So his brothers who already resent him and they're like, you're having dreams that we're going to bow down to you. And they grow to hate him to the point where they're in the field and they come up with a plan of how they're going to kill their brother, 
Joseph. So Joseph is coming, and they, they're going to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest brother, right, he doesn't want to kill Joseph. He's kind of in this mob mentality here and can't speak up necessarily. But he says, listen, guys, why don't we throw him in a cistern, a deep well, and we'll hold him there while we figure out what we're going to do. So they grab Joseph and they throw him in the well. And while Reuben's back is turned, Judah speaks up. Now we learn that Judah's faith in God is really like one of those superstitious, I don't know if you've ever been around those religious people who just are superstitious, right? Like I've got to pray here, I've got to do this, or else God's going to punish me. And you're like, bro, God wants a relationship. He's not like out throwing lightning bolts. That's just the wrong religion, right? But that's the kind of person Judah was. And Judah was scared of the blood curse, he, he talks about the blood of Joseph. We can't have his blood on our hands. Remember the blood of Abel? It cried out from the ground. We can't have this. And, and so he says, why don't we sell him to the slave traders? Here they come. They're passing by. Why don't we sell him? And Reuben's gone. Reuben's intention had been to get Joseph out of the well and to take him home. But Reuben's gone. And the other brothers are like, sure, all right, that sounds good. We'll be rid of him. We won't hear his dreams anymore. We won't have to look at that ridiculous coat. And so they sell him. And Reuben gets back, and he finds him gone, and he tears his garments. And, and they come up with a plan that they take that expensive coat and they're going to dip it in animal's blood and they're going to take it to Jacob and they present it to Jacob and, and, and allow Jacob to draw the conclusion that Joseph has been killed by wild animals. And they expect that their dad's going to mourn for a certain period of time and he's going to get over it. But Jacob never gets over it. In his mourning, he just gets lost in his mourning. And it's years and years where he refuses and they can't comfort him. And his, and his sons, they, they kind of thought that he would, you know, it would be sad, but then they would get over it, but they never gets over it. And the chapter 37 ends, and then chapter 38 begins. And, and remember, I mean, Joseph's story is awesome. It skip over to chapter 39. I mean, he gets sold into Potiphar's house. He gets thrown into prison. Prison's not great, but then he gets out of prison and he becomes a ruler in Egypt, right? It's an amazing story. But we stop. In the middle, and the beginning of chapter 38, it tells us, in this time, Judah left. And the Hebrew behind chapter 37 and 38 shows us that these two chapters are parallels to one another. That it's the working out of 37 in Judah's life. And Judah never reconciles with his dad. He tells his dad this lie that, that, that his son is dead, and he never reconciles with him. And, and he, he doesn't understand and really care about people at all. And he doesn't have a relationship with God. And he takes all of that and he runs away from the situation. He doesn't deal with the trauma. He doesn't bring any reconciliation. He just runs away. And how many of us know that when we run away from that traumatic experience and all these broken relationships, that we are primed to make bad decisions? I don't know if in your life, I've done this in my life where I wish I had had just the self-awareness to know that I was primed to make a bad decision. Like when everything around you, when you're upset about everything, like don't make long-term decisions in that moment. Like you need to sit, you need to get counsel, you need to wait for a minute. But Judah goes and, he, and, he's, and he's coming out of all of this and he makes a decision, the scriptures tell us, to marry a Canaanite woman. And Abraham had been so clear, God had been so clear, do not marry the people of this land. But here's Judah. I mean, he's walking out of all of this, all the stuff that, that he's done and he's broken. And he walks in and he marries this woman. And to be honest, it's no favor to this woman either to marry Judah. And, and him and, and this Canaanite woman, they have three sons. So son number four, Judah, has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. 
And this is the story of, of chapter 38 of Genesis. And it says that, that Judah, you know, again, he's this domineering personality. He picks his own wife, but he won't allow his son to pick his wife. It says that he takes a wife, uh, he takes Tamar and, and kind of forces uh, Ur and Tamar to get married. Now, the scriptures tell us about Ur that he was a wicked man. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us what he did. But it describes him as wicked to the point where this is the first person in scripture that describes that God took him out. God put him to death. It is the first individual in scripture that God took him out. And it says God killed Ur because he was so wicked. And, and you look at that and you say, is there any wonder? I mean, we find out that Ur and Onan are both wicked men and, and not godly men, but is it any wonder? I mean, who's their dad? I mean, their dad is this guy who's come out of the situation, not dealt with anything in his own life, and now he's raising sons, and his sons come up just like him. And, and Ur is wicked, and God kills him. And now here's where we really, the culture kicks in here, okay? There is something in this time called brother-in-law marriage. And that is, if your older brother, like for Onan, when Ur dies, if he doesn't have any kids, then you are to marry your sister-in-law, your you know, former sister-in-law, whatever, and you are supposed to have a child with her that will then take the place in the lineage of your older brother. So they're supposed to have a child that takes the place of Ur. And, and later on, it's called Leverite marriage, but that's a Latin word. And, and so in this time, it would have been known as the brother-in-law rule where Onan is supposed to uh, fill in for this tribal place here uh, and, and in the inheritance and the name of the family. Now, Onan does not publicly come out and say, I'm not going to do this, but instead he does everything that he does in secret, in private, and he takes Tamar as his wife, and he enjoys the act of marriage with Tamar, but he does not allow her to have children. And if you say, Pastor, that's amazingly vague, and I don't know how that works, um, I would say, read the Bible, and if you have any questions, talk to Pastor Sam. <laughs> the Latin is uh, coitus interruptus, uh, which someone says sounds like a terrible Harry Potter spell. Um, and it, you'll get these jokes later on the way home, and they're, they're bad. They're not good. See, I don't know why you're going to come back next week. I don't. So Onan, he, he does wickedness, and, and I love God, and it sounds weird, and again, but God will not allow Tamar to be taken advantage of in this way. Will not allow Onan to exploit her for his own purpose in private like that. And it says that God took out Onan as well. And I know our theologically we could get into things and we could be like, wow, and why, and who, and how, and like, I know some pretty wicked people, and I can't, why doesn't God take them out? He took them out. I don't know. I don't know the answers to all that stuff. But it says he took out Onan as well. And so at this moment, Judah's in a spot. His two oldest sons have, have died while married to this woman. And he, 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 wants to look, uh, he wants to look a certain way. He wants to look strong and he wants to look religious. And he wants to look like, you know, he's the, the man. And yet he's a, little, uh, he's a little unsure of what to do with Tamar. He doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want Selah to die too. And Selah's kind of still a little too young. And, and uh, he's trying to figure things out. But one of the things that we see in the scriptures is there is no mention of Judah mourning for either of his sons dying. And we see Jacob mourn. And when Jacob, when Joseph is supposedly dead and Jacob mourns, he gets lost in it. 
And, and he, he never grieves or mourns properly, but his whole life, it's like he can't live or carry on with his whole life for years and years because he's mourning his son. And then Judah, who, who doesn't show anything, he wants to be strong, he wants to be tough, and so he shoves it all down and he refuses to grieve or to mourn for his boys and he just carries on like business as usual. And I want to tell you, neither of those approaches to grieving are correct. When someone passes away, it, it hurts, and we're supposed to grieve, but there's a process for it. And that process usually involves other people speaking into us and some counsel and some help getting ourselves reoriented into life so that we continue with the purpose that God has for us. It's not easy, but also we don't shove it away and just pretend that it didn't happen. And Debbie Neal leads Grief Share, and it's, it's such an amazing experience uh, to see people come in and, and to experience that there's a right way to mourn and to grieve, and, and then to be able to, to still pursue the purpose that God has for your life. With, with Jacob and with Judah here, we see that if you take either of the other two paths, you can end up in a broken says to Tamar, listen, go back to your father-in-law's house and stay there until Sheila is old enough and, and, and I'll have him marry you and have a child that can take the place of Ur in the family lineage. But the scripture tells us really in his heart he was thinking, I'm not letting her near Sheila because I don't want him to die too. Apparently she's cursed. Apparently she's the problem. People that are broken always think that someone else is the problem. And years begin to pass by. And, and as they pass by, it becomes obvious that Judah is not going to give Tamar to Sheila to marry him and, and to have this family line. Uh, let me go back here and just mention Onan when he was doing his thing. The reason he was doing that is because if, if, they had, if she had a son, if he had a son with Tamar, that son would have taken Ur's place in the family lineage. So the inheritance, that son would have received a double portion of the inheritance, and the inheritance would have been divided four ways. If it stayed with just Onan and Shelah, then the inheritance would have just been divided three ways. Onan would have gotten two parts of it, and Shelah would have just gotten one. And so we see the motivation behind what Onan was doing as he was exploiting Tamar. But now it's become clear that Judah is not going to give uh, um, Tamar the permission to marry Sheila. Now, he could have released her at any time. It wasn't, it wasn't a matter of saying of this having to happen, but he could have released her at any time and said, go, marry somebody else, go, live your life. But instead, he wanted to look like the man. He wanted to look like he was following all the traditions and rules. So he said, wait. And he held her in bondage and captive into the place of believing she was the one that was cursed. And as the years go by, and eventually she realizes, hey, he's not, I'm not going to marry Sheila. And, the, and my, my husband's family line and bloodline is going to be broken. She hears that Judah is coming to a certain place for the shearing of the sheep. And she takes off her widow's garment. She's had it on for years and years and years. And she replaces it with a disguise in order to appear to be a prostitute. And she puts herself in the place where she knows she can run in to Judah. And Judah um, in line with his character, he comes to her and, uh, and, and propositions her. And, and what happens, what I read in the scriptures, that's what happens. And, and in that moment, um, Tamar uh, it, it deceives her father-in-law. She becomes pregnant and then goes home. He is none the wiser. A few months later, about three months in, uh, they, they hear that Tamar is pregnant. 
And Judah stands up in self-righteousness and says, you bring her out here, we're going to burn her at the stake. She had sex outside of marriage, we're going we're gonna to burn her at the stake. Coming from Judah, okay, coming from this guy, okay, all right. And here's one of, the, one of just the most powerful power moves in all of Scripture. Tamar comes out and says, okay, you want to burn me at the stake? That's fine. And she starts walking to the stake, and she has the cord and the seal and the staff of Judah. And she says, while I'm over here walking to the stake, could you just take these to Judah and show them to her? That's who the father is. I'm just going to go over here and let you burn me at the stake. And as, as she's walking toward that cord and seal and staff of Judah comes to Judah. And she says, this is the father. And he sees it. And he says, oh, she's more righteous than I am. In, in the brother-in-law marriage, in certain circumstances, the father-in-law could step in in order to preserve the bloodline. He could have done this. He could have released her. But instead, he did all of these things. And, and Tamar had to step up and take a bold and unconventional route. She had to do something that had to be terrifying, had to be hard, but she had to believe, listen, I'm preserving the bloodline of my husband. I am fulfilling the duty that I'm supposed to fulfill. And she stepped out. And we read the story, and if you just read right over it and you think, oh, Judah, and his name means praise, and oh, he's a guy, so he has to be great. And you miss that, no, he was a self-righteous jerk. And Tamar had to do something so out of the box, so crazy, in order to fulfill the righteousness and the call that was on her life. So she gives birth to two, two sons, two twins, Zara and Perez. And, and ladies, I've been present for, for three births, okay? And, uh, and I can't imagine what happened in this story. Zara sticks his hand out first, okay? <laughs> and then Perez in there pulls that back. I, and then Perez is born first. Ouch. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't really understand, okay? But it's just, a, it's crazy. But then Perez, as God has a tendency to favor the younger brother, Perez becomes the one to enter in to the lineage of Jesus. As Tamar preserves the line of Judah. And we see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Here are all of these ladies who refused to be defined by their past their circumstances, the choices that they had made, the way others used them and exploited them. But instead, they stood up and they said, I will be defined as a follower of God. Regardless of my situations, I will be defined as the one who maintains and preserves the bloodline. 
the heritage that eventually led to the Messiah. And Jesus comes and he says to us in the parable of the, of the unjust manager, he says to him, look, he says to us, look, you guys tend to play it safe. You tend to play it safe. Can you hear? Jesus doesn't make this exact parallel, but can you hear him saying, I wish more of you were like Tamar. I wish more of you were willing to take a risk and to be bold to preserve my bloodline. How many people are never going to hear about Jesus because we won't take a risk to talk about him? How many people are never going to see the love of Christ because we won't take a bold step of love, of concern, of sacrifice to show someone the love of Jesus? How many of us are so concerned with playing it safe and so concerned with bemoaning our circumstances that we refuse to take any risks to be bold for God? Jesus comes and says, the people of this world are more shrewd than the people of light. Use the time that you have. Use the resources that you have. Use the influence that you have for the kingdom of God so that people can come into the bloodline of Jesus and be forgiven of their sins. When is the last time you or I took a risk? Is it true that we just play it safe in a day and we play it safe for a week and then we play it safe for a month and then we play it safe for a year and then we play it safe for a decade and the next thing you know, we've played it safe for a lifetime. Oh, well, I can't speak up here because somebody will be offended. I can't make this sacrifice because then I'll have to do without. I can't open my home for a small group because, well, what are people gonna think? What about the inconvenience? I can't take somebody that doesn't know Christ out to dinner and try to have that conversation with them. I can't take any of those risks. We continue to play it safe. And Jesus comes and says, listen, these people in the world are more shrewd than the people of light. When are you gonna take a chance? When are we gonna take a risk? How long are we gonna continue to play it safe? Certainly in the last day, Tamar is gonna stand up and say, I didn't play it safe. I, I did something that sounded incredible in your ears but here's the bloodline of Jesus. Where are our risks? Where are our chances? Have, when's the last time you got together with some friends and said, this might sound crazy, but I'm wondering about doing this. And your friends said, whoa, but it doesn't sound wrong. It just sounds a little crazy. Can we be not wrong and a little crazy sometimes? Is that the call of Tamar? Is that the instruction of Jesus? Let's stand together. God, we rejoice in the call that you've placed upon our lives. Lord, I, I pray that our eyes would be open to see, God, that regardless of where we work and what we do, Lord, that the work that we do is for you to create and to mold and to shape and to influence. And I pray that wherever we are, God, that you would call us to take the appropriate risks, God, to stop playing it safe. Lord, this story is hard on us, but Tamar, we hear you. We see you. God, would you direct us and guide us, Lord? Our prayer team is coming right now, and as we dismiss in a moment, if you wanna pray about a risk you need to take or share that or whatever, that's great. If something is 
someone in your life needs salvation or, or someone needs a touch from the Lord or you need a touch from the Lord, they would love to pray with you this morning, even as we dismiss in a moment. God, I pray that you would lead us. God, I pray that we would have peace, so much peace that it would free us to take a risk. So much peace that we would trust, God, that even if we trip and fall, you're gonna catch us. Lord, stir our hearts to eternal things. May our minds be set on you. May the vision of eternity give us peace and stir us to take chances to lead others to you, to point them to you, to share your love. I pray the blessing of this peace so strongly on your people that those around them would take notice and that people would come to us and say, what's different about you? Why do you not yell at us when we make mistakes? Why do you not fret and worry when things seem to be falling apart around you? And our answer will be, it's Jesus. Jesus gives me peace. Jesus grounds me. I thank you for this peace and I pray this blessing on your people now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Peace be with you.